wonder if you could turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, and then if you can keep your finger in Micah chapter 5. I'm going to read quite a familiar passage to you. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod heard the news, heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem was with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And so they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. And when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country in another way. And if you can keep your, your finger in, the, in Micah chapter 5, I'm going to read one verse from there, which of course I've already read from Matthew's uh, Gospel. Now on Thursday night, I, um, I stood up and thanked the Thursday night congregation for their faithfulness in turning up every Thursday to, to listen to God's Word. Um, it's always a thrill that the congregation comes back to listen to what you have to say. And um, I was so grateful, I've been so grateful uh, for uh, this, the group of people that come on a Thursday. And of course the same is going to be said for a Sunday morning. A different set of faces in, in some respects, and yet uh, another, uh, a lot of the same people as well. But uh, it's good to know that um, there is a congregation that meets together in this place on a Sunday morning to worship the Lord. You know, in, uh, at this time of the week, we come to gather together to have communion with one another, fellowship. Of course, we come to worship the Lord and sing our praises to Him. We come to remember the sacrifice that He made for us through His death upon the cross. And of course, we've come to listen to God's Word, what He has to say to us. I wonder, has it been a profitable 12 months here on a Sunday morning? Has it been conducive to our spiritual growth? Has it been worth the effort to come along? You know, and um, will we continue to do it next year? Is it worth it next year? The question is, why? Why do we come on a Sunday morning? Why do we present ourselves into this place? You know, surely there are so many other things 
that we can we could be involved with. You know, when I go from here today this morning, I'll go up Pentaril, and as soon as this houses stop, I can look into Pentra Park, and Pentra Park will be crawling with people. There'll be dozens and dozens and dozens of children. And for every child, there's a set of parents, and there will be a, a vast group of people over there. Pauline said, come home from Asda's yesterday, and she said that it was full down there. It's crazy at Christmas, as you know. You've got to shop uh, till you drop for Christmas, because, you know, Asda's is shut for 12 hours over Christmas. You know, how could we ever be without Asda's for 12 hours? But the woman at the till said to Pauline, tomorrow will be the day. Tomorrow will be the day. You know what I should imagine? That if he was in Asda's this morning, the queues for the tills would be right back up the aisles and everybody be getting irate. But it's, it's what happens on a Sunday now. Sunday is a shopping day. It's a time when we can go out and do the things that we always wanted to do. And surely there are more relevant endeavours, more profitable pursuits... Um, to be involved with on a Sunday morning. You know, better than sticking ourselves in the four walls, however nice they are, and however warm it is, we are stuck here every Sunday morning in these four walls. Is there something better? Is there something more beneficial? Is there something better for the common good? Why? Why do we do it? You know, and if I was here as the, a pastor of a church, which I am, of course, I'm, I'm here as a pastor of a church, should have said. And I'm going to try to encourage you to do the same next year. What am I going to say to you that will draw you back here next Sunday, and especially the Sunday after, which will be the first, year, first Sunday morning of 2020? What am I going to say that will encourage you to come along. And I'm going to tell you this. Just one sentence from God's word. It's found in Micah chapter 5. And it's verse 2. And this is what it says. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth are from everlasting. You know, and that's all I need to say to you. To encourage you to come. To answer all the questions that I've asked. Is there a better thing to do on a Sunday morning? Well, listen again. Listen again. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler of Israel, whose goings forth are from of old and from everlasting. Do you understand? The thing is, the reason for our existence as members of the body of Christ in Emmanuel, the reason why we leave our warm beds and our warm rooms to come out in the cold and the dark and the damp, uh, each time we come to this place, the reason is you in that verse this is the essence of our faith this is the bedrock upon which we build our lives that one verse 
sums it all up for me. That one verse tells us why we make our way faithfully here on a Sunday morning to do the things that we actually do. Now we know that that verse has tremendous messianic substance attached to it. Because that's where I read Matthew chapter 2. Because Matthew chapter 2 quotes uh, the chief priests and the scribes who use this verse to pinpoint the birthplace of the king of the Jews. You know when they were badgered by Herod. Where is he who's going to be born king of the Jews? Can you tell me where it is? Is there something written about him in the Old Testament? Says Herod. You know, and So we know somehow that this verse in Micah is all about Jesus. And if you notice when uh, I read about Herod, he didn't say king of the Jews. The wise men said king of the Jews. Herod said the Christ. King of the Jews, the Christ. The King of the Jews is the Christ. The King of the Jews is the Messiah. You want he comes to the rulers of Israel and says, where is the Messiah to be born? Where is the Christ to be born? And they immediately knew where to look for the information. And that is in the prophetic word of God. It's incredible. How do we know what's going to happen today? Says Herod, how are we going to find this needle in an haystack? And he says, well, let's look at the word. And the word will tell us exactly where this baby is to be born. You know, and these incidental uh, factors of Christmas unveil to us the identity of that little baby in a manger. But who exactly is he? Who is the baby in the manger. You know, and um, when you read that chapter, that verse that I read from Micah chapter 5, it can be quite confusing because you seem to be moving from the ridiculous to the sublime. In fact, that verse contains for us probably the greatest contrast that we could ever imagine. Just look at it again and look and note his humble beginnings. You know, his origins are nothing to shout about. This is no golden spoon baby. You know, destined for great things because of his position. Here he is. He belongs to a clan that is little among the thousands of Judah. Doesn't speak of privilege at all. Doesn't speak of royalty at all. Doesn't speak of purpose at all. In fact, he's rather, or this is rather, insignificant. You know, Gideon, I suppose, had the same problem when God called him. And this is his answer to the call of God. My Lord, how can I save Israel? My, indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And I am the least in my father's house. You and you, we have exactly the same thing. You are the least in the clans of Judah. There's thousands of clans that are bigger than you, and better than you, and stronger than you, and more powerful than you. So he comes from humble beginnings. You know, Gideon, when you look at Gideon, he was probably the most unlikely man to accomplish what God had planned for him. 
Who would have picked Gideon? You know, he wouldn't have picked himself. No one would have picked him. But God picked him. You know, and this, when Jesus arrived on the scene of time, in that foreboding stable, he too was the unlikeliest person to affect the eternal consequences of millions. But you see, the angel had said about him, before he was born, he would save his people from their sins. But so insignificant was the birth of the child, that those who knew about it had to be told about it. You know, the shepherds were oblivious to the birth of Messiah until the angels came and told them that he's born in Bethlehem. The wise men were oblivious to the coming of the Son of God until the star told them. And it took them to a place called Bethlehem. You and they were the only visitors that they had. Everyone who came had to be told to come. Not even the next door neighbour. Come and have a look to see what was going on. You know, but that same babe is the subject today of thousands, if not millions of sermons throughout the world. On this, the last Sunday before his advent, everyone is talking about Jesus. Everyone is talking about this babe. You know, what to be, people have to be told to find him. Neighbours didn't even bother to walk up the street. Not even the in-laws were there. Or the grandparents. And yet now, thousands of sermons. He is the subject of them. You know, and um, he has been the subject of debate ever since this moment. You know, and more ink has been spilt over trying to get to the bottom of Christ than any other person in history. So who is he? Who is he? Well, his humble beginnings would point indisputably to his humanity. You know, and when you look at the story of Christ, one of the greatest things that are written about Jesus is actually the bits that we jump over. And that is his lineage. Who on earth would want to come out on a Sunday morning and read Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to however it is? Who on earth would want to come out and read Luke chapter 3? Read this endless list of names. Who on earth would want to do that? And yet, it is his lineage that roots him into the human family. He doesn't pop down from heaven and bush out of some cloud. Yes, he goes back that way. But he comes the normal way. You see, his lineage and his, and his named ancestors form a part of history. He didn't just happen on the scene. Everything about his arrival was normal except for that little fact of his virgin birth, of course. Matthew follows his line right back to Abraham. And that sets him among the covenant people of God. Luke, of course, goes back even further and takes him all the way back to Adam. And that sets him among men. His humble beginnings tell us that he is human. Human. He didn't just happen on the scene. We can trace his steps just like we can trace our own. 
You know the program on TV which is quite popular, Who Do You Think You Are? You know, is, um, has popularized uh, our investigation of family lines. You know, years ago when I was working in Ensel, when computers started to get quite uh, commonplace, I remember there was one boy who used to be the receptionist in the castle. His, his whole delight was going back to find his ancestry. And every time you walk past him, he'd call you over and he'd say, I've gone back another generation and wow, what do you think I found? And my mother always used to say, leave all that to one side. You want to bother with that? I want to rake all that stuff up again. But um, <laughs> who do you think you are? Jesus, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Well, I tell you this, says Jesus. I'm the son of David. I tell you this, says Jesus. I'm the son of Abraham. I tell you this, says Jesus. I'm the son of Adam. I tell you this, says Jesus. I'm the son of God. Which sort of blows your mind. Yes, I can take that he's the son of David. His lineage tells us. I can take that he's the son of Abraham. His lineage tells us. The son of Adam. That's quite normal because we're all sons of Adam. But then he goes that one step further and says, he's the son of God. But first and foremost, he's human. He is human. Because he had to be. He has to be human. In order to solve the problem, the human problem of sin. You see, it was man who had turned his back on God. God hadn't turned his back on man. It's man who has gone away from God. And it's man who has to put it right. You see, God couldn't put it right. The angels couldn't put it right. But God in the flesh could put it right. So he had to be human. And that's why the angel could say, He shall save his people from their sins. So his humble beginnings would tell us that he is the perfect man to put right what Adam made wrong so many thousands of years ago. His humble beginnings will also give way not just to notoriety but also to authority. Now the insignificant one that we talked about he is set to reign and to rule over the household of Israel. So let's think about his, his, um, his journey. First of all, of course, he was insignificant. Everybody who visited him had to be told where he was and who he was. Not even his next door neighbor was pop, would pop around and see him. There was insignificance written all over the manger. Of course, in his life, there was rejection. Nobody wanted him. He came to his own, and his own received him not. No, going further on, there was assassination. They wanted rid of him. So they hung him on a cross and crucified him. But then the next part of his of his life, of his testimony, was insignificance, rejection, assassination, authority. Authority. You know, and that's the story. Of the babe who lies humbly in the manger. He's the suffering servant. He's the crucified Christ. He is the one marred more than any other man. 
But one day he will be the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess. You want you is before Handel ever penned the words. Isaiah has told us the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. Why? Because the mouth of the Lord has spoken this. You know, that is such a difficult day to imagine when everyone will be bowing the knee. You know, at the present, we see him blasphemed and ridiculed and maligned and, and uh, sort of ignored. But one day, one day, that same babe in the manger, now a glorified man, will be the object of everyone's gaze. And everyone will see the glory of this Lord together. Such is the claims of God. You know, we know, don't we, that when Jesus walked the earth, he did sort of say some outrageous claims that have already come to pass in the experience of this babe. <coughs> Remember when pressed for a sign, he uses the sign of Jonah and says, three days was Jonah and three nights in the belly of the whale. So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the earth. Destroy this temple, he says, and I'll rebuild it in three days. And again he says, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. These are the claims of Christ. And no, we've seen them come to pass. Yes, they rejected him. Yes, they assassinated him. But up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. And he arose the victor over the dark domain. And he lives forever with his saints to reign. You know, when you look at a newborn baby, there's a newborn baby, look. That's what they like. When you think about a newborn baby, you may think of his family as we have done. You might think of his future. If you remember, we've done the preparations for, for the Advent and we thought about his family and we thought about his future. Very rarely do we ever give any consideration to his past. Which is strange. Well, not strange, which is normal. You know, because babies haven't got a past. You know, there they are. The first time you see them is the first time you see them. And that's it. That's their past right there in their arm. Newborn babies do not possess a past. And yet Micah tells us quite plainly that this baby has a past. And here we are this morning. We can consider the past of a newborn baby. He's the only one in history that we can consider the past. Listen to what Micah says. Whose goings forth are from old and from everlasting. You know, and that's the mind-boggling part of this prophecy. You know, we can understand lineage. Of course we can. We've all got one. We can fathom destiny and purpose. Of course we can. We've all got one. But a baby with a past is beyond our comprehension. And yet Micah informs us that his past predated his mother. His past predated his kingly father, that is David. His past predated his progenitor, Abraham. And even 
predated his primal ancestor Adam. Because when you go to Luke's account, there's only one person left after Adam, and that is God. The son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Adam, and the son of God. And what a wonderful description of God that we have in our text this morning. Whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. You know, not only has this babe got a purpose in life, he is the purpose of life. You know, when John in his uh, gospel has described him as the Logos, or we could call him the logic of God behind the created universe. And Paul tells us that having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. You know, the bottom line is that when we sing, he's got the whole world in his hands, we are approaching the greatest truth of all. That he has the whole world in his hand. He brought it into being. He sustains it. He keeps it going and he will one day wrap it up. Forget about the global warming, warming uh, sort of fear that is being perpetrated all over the world today. God has got his hand. You know when I hear Christians talking about global warming and how it's going to destroy this and destroy that, I wonder what Bible they're reading. You know God told Noah that until the or as long as the earth remains, you'll have seed time and harvest, cold and heat, warm out uh, summer and winter. There's, you know, he is in control of what happens to this world. Not our scientists. Boo. I could punch them in the nose. In love. Thank you, Al. Thank you, Al. <laughs> For by him, all things were created. That are in heaven and that are on earth. Visible and invisible. Thrones or dominions. Principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things consist. So without him, there's nothing. There's nothing. And that's what I've got to say to you this morning. You know, it's, a, it's been a rainy day. It's been a terrible week. You know, I'd be coming home from somewhere, Tuesday or Wednesday, at three o'clock. And I had to put my lights on in the car because it was so dark. That's the, the climate outside. That's what's happening outside. And that's what happens sometimes when we come here on a Sunday morning. We're a, a small group of people, you know, and who through thick and thin have turned up here week in and week out to hear the word of God expounded. To sing praises to his name. To remember the sacrifice that he has made for us. Mm-hmm. Through the death of his son. And all i got to say to you. Is this. We have a God. Who has become flesh. To deal with our sins. Humbled himself. In order to take us to the highest place. Of eternity. I don't think I could sing, say anything better to you. Mm-hmm. Than that. We are serving. 
The God who loved this world so much that he became flesh dealt with the greatest problem that we have through his death. Now holds the future in his hands. And he has an eternal purpose for every one of us who have put our trust in him. Let me tell you, your worship of him, your commitment to him, and your desire to serve him is never ever in vain. I would call it the greatest pursuit known to man. Stuff adds us today, i got to be honest. Stuff it yesterday, you know, but uh, stuff it today. I'm not interested. You know, I'm, I love football, but I'm not interested to spend my Sunday mornings on Pentra Park. I'm in the place I want to be because I want to meet with a person who wants to meet with me and has dealt a wonderful has dealt with me wonderfully in grace we've come to give thanks to him we've come to praise him we've come to worship him why? well because only he deserves all that what? did the Lord come down from heaven to earth? and did he condescend to human birth? in swaddling clothes within the manger laid who spread the heavens the wide prospects made O mystery of godliness and power omniscient he yet never knew the hour omnipotent yet through weakness slain immortal yet within a tomb has lain Lord grant us peace a humble contrite heart to receive with meekness what thou dost impart to worship where we cannot understand and bless thee for the grace wherein we stand Amen